Welcome to Biosphere, a podcast by and for biology enthusiasts of all stripes and all patterns. We are biology graduate students at the California Institute of Technology, also known as Caltech. I'm Aditi. I'm Lev. I'm John. I'm Julian. And today we'll be discussing the exciting and murky field of the emergence of life on planet Earth. How did we come to be? What brought us to this point? There are many schools of thought on the matter and not a little bit of controversy. Let's start with a hot take. On a scale of one to five, how would you rate instability, Lev? Are you asking me as a person or as a biologist? I'm asking you to take this any way you would like. You can be stable in disequilibrium, which is life. Nice. We might be able to get into that today, I guess. I don't we know. We sure are. Anyway, okay, so instability as a biologist, five because we need it, <laughs> right? Yes. As a person, yeah. I like stability. Great. Yes. <laughs> yes, I was gonna answer it as a person, and I would say instability is a, is a big ol' one, or a tiny one, whatever one. <laughs> it's like, I, yeah, I definitely like stability, more okay. than instability. I'm, I'm also gonna give it a one. Okay, from also a biological perspective though, because in like behavioral biology, if you treat even like bees, for example, randomly in terms of how you interact with them or when you shock them, oh, is it bad for them? <laughs> I want to change mine to a two because I think that in life, it can be fun to have infrequent instability occur. Spontaneity. Kind of spice it, yeah, spontaneity. Spice it up. Spice it up. Okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I'll give it a two. Yeah. Well, I'm going to give it a solid three, which I, know, I feel like I always do this. I'm always like, oh, I'm somewhere in the middle. But here's... I think as a person, again, like from the biology perspective, totally with you guys, stability is death. But I mean, I think there's good things to instability, right? Like if we look at things from a political perspective, for example, instability provides spaces for new ideas and new leaders, big changes, sometimes very needed changes, but it also gives us a chance to sometimes, the, sometimes the worst in people comes out in times of great instability. So. It's a balance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Politician anyway, Aditi. Politician me. <laughs> the reason I bring this up is that we'll be discussing the concept of disequilibrium or lack of stability or things of that nature in the context of the emergence of life on Earth, which is a huge topic and we're not likely to cover it all. But I'm going to start with talking about early Earth conditions. What do you all know about early Earth? Hot. Okay. No oxygen. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so that's two things I would okay. say. Okay. So... Hot, Lev, kind of, kind of in dispute as I understand uh, it. It might actually be a little more temperate than we thought. But when very I say volcanic. Earlier, I'm, yeah. Molten no, okay, I'm not talking about molten hot magma. <laughs> I'm not talking Earth like when it first formed. I'm oh, okay. It was like a little further on, when life first emerged. They actually think, by some estimates, that it was quite temperate comparatively. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't just like the world wasn't exploding constantly. What was far greater than what we have right now is UV flux. So the amount of UV radiation hitting the planet's surface mm -hmm. from the sun was much higher by orders of magnitude. Wait, but, but in terms of temperate, what do you mean by more temperate than we thought? Like, like if you not, took a human and put them in one billion old Earth, are they going to die of heat? Not necessarily. Not necessarily, okay. Yeah. Wow, okay. They'll die, surprising to me. They're dying They'll die of oxygen. They'll die of oxygen. oxygen. And, okay. but by some, and by UV and radiation. So they'll be burned to death in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. They'll have a horrible sunburn. It's a horrible, horrible way to go, but the chances of you just baking because it's a well over the boiling temperature is, okay. is not necessarily the case. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Um, still an active area of research, however, I should, mm -hmm. I should make that clear. Mm -hmm. But in these conditions, somehow life, life formed. 
And there's a couple different theories about how this happened, which I think you guys might be familiar with. One is the RNA first hypothesis, which said, um, to summarize, that genetic information was the first thing to show up. RNA is related to DNA in the cell. It's not the same thing, but it's related. And it also encodes genetic information. It's another form of a blueprint. And so one hypothesis says, well, how could you have life if you don't have a blueprint for it? So RNA came first. There's another school of thought that says, actually, the way life generates energy has to have come first hmm. before the information ever was around. Energy, energy generating processes <laughs> came first. Still how can has, you have information without energy? Right. But how can you generate energy if you don't have an information blueprint, right? Like there's, it's back and forth. So it's hotly contested, not because the people studying this are like indecisive, but it's important to keep in mind that we're studying something that happened three and a half billion years ago. Wait, but there's so, a third thing too. There's a it's lot like of things. What? I'm only covering a couple. Yeah, right? like compartmentalization first. Yeah. Like first you have to separate things in order to have an internal life and a, like, you know, have oh. your own internal existence in the outside world. And an world. outside existence. Interesting. Okay. I wouldn't have, I, I kind of think of that as a separate problem in my mind, but... I don't. Compartmentalization like, does get touched on in both of these theories. Okay. It's okay. not necessarily, it's always, it's its own thing. Okay. It's not that the other two theories ignore compartmentalization because they do, they are important. Um, there are a lot of other theories. We're only hitting the two biggest ones or mm -hmm. a couple of the biggest ones that are out there right now because yeah. like I said, this topic is huge and we could go on forever. So first, okay, more hot takes for you guys. Whoa. Who's Double the, hot takes. All of the hot takes. <laughs> <laughs> Who is in the RNA camp off the bat? Anybody? I am, yes. Julian's on the RNA Well, it's the not RNA just camp. information, but it's also that RNAs can be enzymes, right? So they can do chemical reactions um, outside of just being mm. information carriers. That's a really great point, and one of the arguments that's commonly made by people who are proponents of the RNA first theory, that RNA doesn't just carry information, but has the ability to push certain chemical reactions forward in, 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 a, in a process called catalysis. And so why do you think, um, Julian, or how do you think that RNA formed in the early, in the early Earth? Just spitball. I, I really don't know. I, I, I don't know much about this topic, and so the that's reason fair. I said RNA is just because that's what I'm more familiar with, I guess, and... There are some arguments that make sense to me, but I don't know how it initially emerges. That's fair. Because especially with this this idea of the heightened UV, it seems yeah. like a problem for a nucleic acid, right? Yes. Because if you bombard it with UV, then you can, what what is it, double bond formation that sort of wrecks the structure? You wreck the structure, effectively. Mm -hmm. That's how that's how people get skin cancer, right? UV is wrecking your skin, and then it wrecks your DNA, and then you've got skin cancer. Basically, mm -hmm. it mutates your DNA. Mm -hmm. Unless the putative, like, early life thing, whatever we want to call it, was happening in a part of the Earth that was shielded from right. yes. the light. Wait, so right. are there, is it known, or are there potential ways, theories that people have for how RNA might emerge from collections yeah, of molecules? Yeah, so have you guys heard of the whole primordial soup thing? Mm-hmm. So Miller-Urey The Miller-Urey experiment is where I was going, yeah. So in the 50s, what somebody, there was this idea that, that life formed in this, what was known as this primordial soup, which was basically a little pond full of all these molecules, like simple molecules, that when electric current passed through them in the form of, you know, lightning or whatever, some sort of energy source, they were able to polymerize. They were able to form longer chains of themselves. Abiotically. Abiotic. On their own, it was a, yeah. a non-biological reaction. With and so what 
these scientists in the 1950s did, Miller and Urey, in, ugh, Miller and Urey did, was that they made this little primordial soup in the lab, and they passed an electric th current through this sort of soup, and they found that they could get complex molecules like amino acids to form. And when other people repeated their experiments later, they actually found that they could get nucleic acids, or okay. some forms of nucleic acids. So it's not inconceivable that a nucleic acid could form. So the idea is that, you know, as far as we know about life today, there mm -hmm. are just th three, three subunits that are necessary, right, for everything. There are amino acids that are necessary for proteins. Mm -hmm. There are nucleic acids that are necessary for DNA or RNA, and mm -hmm. these information-carrying molecules. Mm -hmm. And then there are fats that are important for compartments yep. and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so you can get nucleic acids from a primordial soup. Yeah. yeah. And what are your thoughts on the idea of a primordial soup? Like, is this a super enriched for the chemicals well, that are necessary in a that way that's was, really not naturalistic? That's that's the thing, right? Is that it, in order for this to have happened, that's one of the big criticisms of this of this theory as well, is if you're saying, well, this happened in the oceans or something, how are you going to get a appropriate concentration of these, like, small molecules that will then become large molecules in something as large as the ocean? You're going to just dilute it all out, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, one response to that has been, well, it's, it was, like smaller tide pools and small, you know, sort of m less mixed areas sure. that maybe helped concentrate these, these okay. molecules in some way. And you'll note, I mean, conveniently, too, that the RNA first hypothesis leads us really cleanly into the central dogma of biology, right? Mm -hmm. Which is that we all have these DNA blueprints in our cells. The DNA is copied to RNA. RNA is basically a small copy of a subset of your DNA that can go swim around your cell and get maybe turned into a protein of some kind. It gets translated into a protein. So those instructions from DNA to protein go through RNA. Mm -hmm. I, I think in some sense we're dancing around the question of what we're defining as life. I feel like it's very hard to define directly, but thinking about specific cases might be more useful. Mm -hmm. So like if you have a little bubble that splits into two bubbles and then grows a little mm -hmm. bit and then splits again, but doesn't have, like, imagine that it doesn't carry any information, but it's just something in the ocean that's able to encapsulate itself and mm -hmm. then through whatever pro process swell and then divide and swell mm -hmm. and then divide. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you didn't know anything about it, you'd be tempted to call that a living thing, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, you could look at it with a simple microscope mm -hmm. or something, you see, oh, there was one, now there are two, and now there yeah. are four. Um, but that's so far away from what, you know, how we think of ourselves and how we think about other living things. Mm -hmm. But would something like that emerging be sufficient to say that, oh, a new form of life emerged? I don't know. And I don't think anybody else does either. I think that's the reason this field is called, the, pe the people researching this field refer to it as the emergence of life and not the origin of life. There's no one pinpoint where you can say, yep, it's alive now. It's, it's a continuum to some extent. I mean, people have tried to define life as something that, you know, uses energy, and, you know, takes an energy and uses it for growth, can replicate itself, can respond to its environment. Like, these, there are all these different mm -hmm. ways of defining life, but when it comes to the point of origins... Yeah, I mean, in, in grade school, um, there are these lyrical life sciences, and there are these CDs where they have songs that they set different life science topics to. Mm. And so this is where I first learned 
the definition of life. And there they say, all, all living things are able to reproduce, move, grow, respond to a stimulus, and carry out metabolic activity. Set to like a American folk song, but <laughs> I don't know if I want to sing it now. <laughs> so I mean, those were the criterion that I kind of grew up on, uh, and I still think about that way. But you know, when you're talking about emergence of life, it's more contentious, I it guess, is. Mm -hmm. because but something can be more alive than something else, right? Even if it has some subset of those characteristics. All animals are alive, but some are more alive than others. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think all animals are all equally alive, right, by those criteria. Yeah. Mm. But if you think about something like a virus, where it can't yep. reproduce itself, but it's able to um, hack cellular machinery so that it can make, you know, be yeah. reproduced, mm -hmm. then it becomes trickier. I don't know. It does. But <laughs> but a virus also isn't necessarily extracting energy from its environment mm -hmm. um, or anything like that. It doesn't grow. Like, once it's produced, that's, that's it. It's not accumulating any more biomass. And so, I don't know. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult philosophical question and biological question, yeah. I think. It'd be surprising, if we, honestly, if we ever really got to a, a, a satisfying answer. Yeah. But it's fun to think about. It is very fun to think yeah, about. Yeah. Okay, you two... Lev and John did not raise your hands when I asked who was pro RNA first. Mm. So let's hear it. Why? Do you want to start, Lev, or should I start? Oh, actually, I... sorry, I'm going to interrupt you, Lev. <laughs> I think I should. I think I should actually explain. Did I explain what metabolism? No, I don't meant? think you did. Yeah. No. You should okay, do that. let yeah, me do yeah, that. Yeah. I think I mentioned it briefly, but just to reiterate, it's the idea that it wasn't our information blueprint that came first, but our means of extracting energy from our environment. So you eat a cookie. Your body extracts energy from that cookie, and now you can go, like, I don't know, run a mile or whatever. Mm -hmm. but, a cookie uh, a mile. A cookie a mile <laughs> keeps the doctor away or something. <laughs> but so, so the, the mechanisms in our cells that are able to do that, that are able to turn that cookie into, like, fuel for our bodies are what came before the information blueprint. So we were just sort of like little energy machines first. Yeah. One of the ideas was that if you start life and you, you look at life and it's exploiting some kind of disequilibrium, in this case, you might suggest it's a, it's a, a redox disequilibrium, which is a type of, of chemical disequilibrium that we, we don't need to necessarily go into a detail, it's been suggested that life might start at hydrothermal vents, where there's chemical processes that I won't get into here that result in a sort of a, a redox disequilibrium, that, a chemical disequilibrium that can be exploited by life. Mm -hmm. The upside of also uh, having life start at a hydrothermal vent as opposed to, to like a, a, a shallow pond where molecules are very concentrated is that they're shielded from UV. Mm -hmm. So those are two things that kind of help. One possibility that's been brought up for, say, information carrying is in form of certain elements in like the surrounding minerals, whether these forms have a certain number of electrons or a certain charge in them. That's been proposed as like a sort of information carrier, um, whether it's it's more negatively or positively charged. It's like a binary information system, sort of. The catalysis question, I think, is still up very much open. I mean, all of these questions are open, but I think that's something that the metabolism first camp is trying to answer right now, is whether you can say that some sort of abiotic component in that hydrothermal vent, for example, if, if we agree that it started at hydrothermal vents, whether there's some sort of other mineral or organic component that could have helped mm -hmm. catalyze reactions and replications and things like that. So that's, that's a question that is very, very open. 
and is a valid criticism of the metabolism first camp, I think. Now, fire away. Okay. Um, the way that I think about all life is sort of as, um, is sort of as like a, a system, right? Like a system of interactions between mm -hmm. molecules that energy and, and constituents are flowing through, right? So like you can think about the human body, right? We eat, we need to eat food and drink water to stay alive. And those food particles and, and molecules rather, and the water gets incorporated into our body. And then eventually we excrete what we what we know the waste products that the body that generates was a good right motion. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and so you know over the I think it's something I've heard this fact once like every seven years every atom in your body has been replaced or something like that really? right I, like, I've heard every cell I've heard every cell except your neurons not sure for neurons okay. not sure think. for neurons okay sure but yeah but Is you that, get the idea oh, sorry, right yes. that things are continually being replaced mm -hmm. um, okay so the way I think about uh, this metabolism first thing is that I sort of, I mean, and this is just totally unscientific speculation it's on my fine. part, but I've just read stuff about this, so it's fun to think about, is, um, is that, you know, you have some system in the beginning that's totally abiotic, whereby uh, you have some chemical cycle that is able to extract energy and could store it somehow in, in its local environment. It doesn't even need to be a compartmentalized cell. It could just be something that is able to sequester energy locally, right? Um, and these types of, I mean, like, we see th examples of this uh, all the time in nature, right? Like, a tornado is, a, is, like, a really good example of this, right? Like, sometimes conditions are such that, in the weather, are such that wind is collected and concentrated into a structure that we mm -hmm. can see and that, you know, has, has very... Uh, uh, clear effects on its environment. Yeah. Um, but that structure is transient, just like all living things are transient. All living things die eventually. And, um, and so, you know, a metabolic cycle in that sense uh, could be sort of a mini tornado happening under the right conditions on an early Earth, collecting energy, and could create the conditions necessary to eventually polymerize uh, information-storing molecules, which could then be the foothold that's necessary for downstream cell production. Um, and of course, that is just so much hand-waving and speculation, <laughs> and it was very uncomfortable for me to explain all of that. But these are these are things that people think about, yeah. um, and ways that people think about them. Lev? Me? Let's hear it. I think I'm about to wax poetic. So, <laughs> Do it. So I don't know, it'll probably be a load of nonsense that people <laughs> then tweet at me. Um, <laughs> Later uh, on in your career. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. People hold it against me. Well, so first of all, I, I do think, I, I think about it as compartmentalization first in okay. terms of what, when, I, when I think about something being actually alive, I think that there needs to be a boundary between the inner world and the outer world. And, uh, and so to that, that, I think, kind of sidesteps this question to some degree, which isn't quite fair, because you need to have something to compartmentalize, and that might be you know, uh, chemical reactions, or it might be information. But I, I, I do think that for life to have emerged, it needs to be compartmentalized in some way. But, but then w when I think about this stuff, I, I always get caught up in these thoughts about like what, you know, kind of like, how is it that life is able to persist in the universe. And the, 
only thing that really occurs to me is, that, and to me it's one of the most amazing things about living things, is that we, as living things, are very well structured, we're organized, we're, we have, you know, some form of, con some contained form in which we exist. But at the same time, we're exquisitely good at causing entropy. Yes. And, and just like, uh, and, and that's, I mean, that's one of the principles of the universe, that entropy always increases. Yes. We're uh, always going towards I'm equilibrium gonna, to some extent. I'm going to interrupt your um, poem for a second just <laughs> to explain what you mean by entropy, which is you're... Oh my god, Lev is so mad that I'm interrupting his poem. <laughs> the no, idea no, yeah, is effectively it relates to the second law of thermodynamics, which says that the the net disorder in the universe is is always increasing. The universe tends towards disorder. So entropy is a measure of how disordered the universe is. Say you have a box of marbles and you've shoved all the marbles in the box on one side and stacked them nicely, and then you close that lid and you shake it up and you open it, there's a good chance that those marbles are all kind of level on the bottom of the box now or the odds of, the, of those marbles stacking back neatly the way you had them before are, are almost non-existent. So the universe is always sort of tending towards mixing it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so basically what I'm saying is that we are like a nicely packed box of marbles yep. that somehow, you know, in the course of life's existence on Earth has emerged and evolved to be nicely organized such that, you know, we can function and eat and do all these things. But what we do best is cause chaos yes. <laughs> everywhere else. And so, in my mind, when I think about kind of the, the ontology of life, or like if there's any sort of, you know, existential pressure in the universe for life to emerge, it's in order to in order for there to be entities that are better at causing entropy yeah. than the non-living universe. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, so this seems very non-intuitive to me, though. Okay. Because when you think about, like, human society, right, a lot of what we do is designed to minimize the amount of disorder that we interact with on a daily basis, right? Like our waste management systems, like how we get rid of garbage and put it in one place, right? We kind of design our environment such that we're operating in a space that has as little disorder or as much consistency as we can. But think about all of the energy that we use to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that the distinction that I'm trying to make is that there's a difference between what we want to do for ourselves as, you know, intelligent life mm -hmm. and what we end up doing for the universe. I... <laughs> well, I should probably, I should probably throw... I feel like this got too big. I feel, yeah, I think we've gone way beyond the science now. The problematic thing about what I said is I basically implied that there's some sort of yearning or purpose yes. in the universe right. yeah. Yeah. Tor right. towards some towards something. Um, but but I think that in a more subtle way, it, you know, in the way, for instance, how complexity emerges in molecular machinery like pr proteins, where you know there are very elegant studies that have been done that show that a protein complex that's common you know, to all life ended up getting more complicated over time for no reason other than just random duplications and things breaking down and then compensating for each other. And so to me, that's a very similar sort of idea uh, you know, in an abstract way that if the universe is tending towards you know, its own heat death by becoming uniform and disorganized and everything, 
that emerging out of it can be processes like life that just ex accelerate this in an exquisite and complicated sort of way. I don't want to say it as a goal, I want to say it as like a property of the universe. And so then, I guess the, the, the question or the untestable, testable hypothesis is whether there's a tendency for life to emerge when there's the ability for it to emerge, or whether it just sometimes emerges and sometimes doesn't, even if the opportunity is there. about these competing theories regarding the emergence of life, and especially when we realize that these are only a couple of the theories in existence, it can feel like science is an unreliable framework through which to view the world, and that scientists themselves are simply guessing. But scientists are doing what everyone does on a near daily basis, updating their understanding of the world as new information becomes available. Our discussion took a little detour to grapple with this concept of uncertainty in scientific research. One last thing that I wanted to discuss before we went any further was this idea of uncertainty in science. We've talked a lot about, oh, we don't know, we don't know. Maybe it's this camp, maybe it's that camp. And I'd just like to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Because I think often when people hear that scientists are uncertain about something or there's a theory versus a hypothesis, it leads to a lot of confusion about what we do and do not know. Yeah. So do you guys want to kind of talk about how uncertainty, do you guys have any thoughts about this? Like how does uncertainty kind of play into the scientific process as a whole and when is it good and not good? I think that in, in a lot of ways though, science really is very similar to the way that people interact with the world in their day-to-day -day experience where you learn like on the playground when you're young, right? That if you are not careful on the monkey bars, then you'll fall off and hurt yourself, right? And you update how you view the wor world, how you behave and interact with it. Um, and in general, we're kind of information processing machines where we have this, all this prior knowledge of what we've seen before, and we continuously update things depending on what we see or mm -hmm. how we interact with the world in a day-to-day -day way. And I think science broadly is very similar to that process of just kind of interacting in a world. We're just often more cautious about what we take as evidence for what, how we should change our view mm -hmm. of what we see, say, in nature. Um, and we have very kind of strict criterion by which we think of something as evidence. A great, like, very high-level discussion. I just wanted to give one very, like, quick practical example. Like, not necessarily example, but just a, a bit of a practical thing here, which is that there's, to some extent, a distrust of, like, what science is telling us, right, For in the broader public. Like, when you... When you hear nutritional information that's like, eat, fat's good, fat is bad, sugar's good, sugar's yeah. bad, and everybody's like, well, what do I do? And I just would like to put in a little plug here for the way the scientific community comes to these conclusions, which is that it's not that we're all in this together bolstering each other and saying, yep, no, your theory's all the way right. Nope, your theory's all the way right. It's that this is sort of like a self-policing community in which we are all critically examining each other's work and saying, I think you missed something here. Or, you, yeah, this is a good line of evidence here. And so when somebody submits their research to a fancy journal that like will publish their research and say, hey, we found something new about the world, there's a panel of people who are experts in that field reviewing it and saying, does this hold water? Do I think these people have a compelling case? And so uncertainty is there, but it's because we are always critically evaluating the evidence. And, and you should think of that sort of review panel as it's not that 
GM is quality checking GM, but that Ford is quality checking GM. Ford is looking at GM going, yeah, okay, I think your work holds water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, nice. yeah, and to to add just a little bit of it, it's also not the case that scientific groups are working in isolation Absolutely. on one subject. So there's, in the literature of you know published scientific work, there's a conversation. And, and I think that where sometimes things go wrong is something is published, and then that's the only thing that is reported on mm-hmm. in, uh, mm-hmm. in newspapers or mm-hmm. in, in blogs. And that's how some subtleties can be missed. So on this topic of instability and, and rapid change and, you know, lots of changes in the environment, I'd like to relate this right back to you as small cells and hydrothermal vents, but the hydrothermal vent is grad school. So in, <laughs> that analogy didn't totally work, but we'll just roll with it. <laughs> in what ways for you guys was grad school different from your previous life experience, whether that was undergraduate education, high school education, work, internships? Mm-hmm you know, whatever you were doing before this, in what ways has grad school been different from that, for better or for worse, and how have you adjusted to that? And in some ways, is that adjustment still ongoing? I would say it's twofold. The first thing is that I feel like the proportion of things that I have to do, that that I'm responsible to complete, that I really enjoy, and that I get a lot of uh, pleasure out out of doing, is much higher now than it was in high school or in college. But on the flip side of that, the, sh- the absolute amount of work that I have to do now as a grad student is way higher than it was in, in uh, undergrad and in high school. And so, yeah, I mean, I feel like there are some days where I'm just in the zone and I'm loving every second of it and I'm spending, like, the vast majority of my day doing nothing but thinking about science. And I love that feeling. It's very invigorating. Um, but then there are other days where I have to continue working on science for, for, you know, a majority of my day because deadlines are coming up and I'm just kind of tired and I don't want to anymore, (laughs) but I have to because that's the job. And so, um, yeah, I feel like, I feel like it has been a bit of a roller coaster in that sense. But now that, um, at least this has been my experience, but all of us are finishing up our second year in grad school, which is typically the time when classes start to uh, peter off and we focus the majority of our time on our research. And I've noticed so far for me that even already I'm, I am much less like stressed because there's just less on my plate. There's less that I need to do day to day, less deadlines that are coming up. And so um, I've, been in a, I've been in a happier state, but the first two years were tough. And it was definitely a tough transition. Do you feel either now that our second year is over, or did you feel this way earlier that as a graduate student, you're you felt more like this is a job than this is like an an education? Uh, I definitely feel like it's more of a job than an education, for sure. But I wouldn't, but I, 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 when you said job, I, like, felt this, like, it's not really a job, it's, like, a way of life, man. (laughs) (laughs) No, but seriously, because, like, I I worked after undergrad before coming here, and that was a nine-to-five job that had clear um, time borders, right, where 
at before and after nine to five, uh, I was not thinking about science unless I really wanted to. But I that that those borders become porous in grad school, <laughs> and you start to have to work. And I think this is actually a larger phenomenon as well in many other careers um, nowadays, like just with the advent of technology. But once again, that's like a kind of tangential. The difference for me between being in a PhD student and being um, an undergraduate or a high school student, for example, is, like John was saying, the number of things you have to do in a day and, and all of that, like the things that you are directly responsible for has definitely increased. And, and part of that, I think, this is sort of a similar but slightly different point, is that when you're an undergrad, you go in every day, you have like a set number, you've got to fill out fill up these requirements for classes, you have to do this homework, here's midterms, here's finals, there are set deadlines, there's a set beginning and end, and um, there's, there's a clear like arc of progress that you know you're following. And that changes when you come to a PhD program because there is no arc of progress. You have peers, I have, you guys are also second year students in biology. But our trajectories are very different. Like, you might be having a great, like, couple of months of research where everything's going well, and at the same time, all of my stuff is failing, or vice versa. And so you can no longer sort of look side to side and say, oh, I'm on the right track, because everybody's kind of on their own, and nobody's telling you what to do anymore. There's no, like, remember the midterm is in two weeks. It's yeah. just mm -hmm. set your own deadlines, figure your own stuff out. Yeah. And so that's been, that's different, but I don't, I don't know if that was... And I feel like the reason I was able to make that adjustment, I'm still making that adjustment, certainly, but totally. I think it wasn't quite as awful because I also took some time off after undergrad. And not everybody needs that time off. I did, but not everybody does. Some people slide right in and are doing great. One thing I will say, though, right, like also kind of related, is a big old plug for work-life balance, is yes. that no matter how porous those boundaries, you don't have that 9 to 5 sort of boundary anymore, no matter how porous those boundaries get, you've got to give yourself time mm -hmm. off to get away from it. Mm -hmm. Because you'll be, you'll, not because you like don't love science enough or whatever, you're here, you obviously care. But because, so if anybody out there is thinking about grad school and is like, everyone's telling them how much they have to work weekends, like, you don't, maybe you have to. I'm only a second year, maybe I'm gonna be wrong, I don't know. <laughs> but I like to think that if you organize what you want to do effectively, you should be able to give yourself balance. And I think that's really important to be nice to yourself that way. Mm -hmm. One big switch that happened to me in, in grad school as compared to undergrad is understanding science better and what happens in science. So like, for example, you know, in the media and just overall, people view professors as like experts, they know all the truth and you know, everything they say is right. And then when you're in a grad school, you know, programming and you have a project which is of your own, which is novel, and which you know the most about of anyone in the world, you know, sometimes you'll disagree with your PI or the professor you're working with about what they say. So that transition of kind of being a self-starter in the sense of like being confident in your own ideas and thinking that perhaps professor is not always correct about, you know, their opinions on, on your project. That's a mind, mindset shift, I think, which um, really only happened for me in grad school. And also with reading scientific papers, you know, for a long time, especially in undergrad, I, I didn't realize that, you know, a lot of 
things that happen in scientific papers, it's not that they're flat out wrong, but you might disagree with their methodology in some way or disagree with the conclusions that they draw based on their data. Um, and being able to look at other people's science and make your own conclusions and um, decisions about what you think based on their data is another thing that I think I learned in grad school, which I didn't really understand in undergrad where you're primarily trying to just get some you know, more facts under your belt so you have a general knowledge base so that you can really um, launch board into your own novel research in um, later education. Well, I, I think that, I mean, I, I feel like I, in the, for the past several weeks, have been in mo more of a state of ennui about, about <laughs> <laughs> grad school. What's going on, so. Web? <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, I, I think that a lot of it has to do with, you know, questions of intrinsic motivation and also more broadly just what, you know, what, what are we even trying to accomplish here? <laughs> 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 um, I, yeah, and, it, and it's an interesting transition because, you know, the way that I grew up and the way that my education has been, everything has been really quite straightforward up until grad school. And it seems like, in one way, grad school is a nice cushioned, you know, six years or something where you don't have to worry about it too much because, you know, you have to do your research and get your thesis and, mm -hmm. you know, preferably publish several papers and in this way prepare yourself to do whatever you might want to decide to do. But I, I have been feeling lately like time is moving very fast. And, and I don't think that, I don't, I guess the, the instability that I feel is this feeling that time is slipping away faster than I, than I can, than I can keep track of it. And I don't know what to do about that. Because, you know, like, uh, I, I feel like when I, when I don't want to be at the bench doing science, what I want to be doing is something like doing short, uh, writing short stories or doing improv or something, and uh, and that casts an amount of doubt into like. I think uh, one of the one yeah. of the ways I've thought about this before is that sometimes I just feel like we are asked to oversaturate on a single topic. Like one of the mm -hmm. great things about undergrad is that you know you went to uh, you went to evolution class, you went to ecology class you went to biochemistry class, but then you get to go to English class yeah. or like, yeah. or, or, you know, some social science class, whatever, just something that was like intellectually stimulating in a very different way. Absolutely. And in graduate school, because you are... Drinking uh, from a fire hose? <laughs> well, that, but because, because you're... really, really your fire hose. <laughs> You're also you're also specifying yourself, right? Yeah. What's the word? Uh, specializing. Specializing. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. Total brain fart there. Um, because you're specializing, you know, it's just a lot of the same topic over and over and over again, and it can it can really tire you out. But I don't know. At least talking to my mentor about this, she has said that the reason why that happens is because you are trying to become an expert in something within a short period of time that that grad school is and that afterwards once you've laid that foundation of becoming an expert on something and you establish yourself and your and and your own lab if you decide to continue in academia then it becomes different because now you have this foundation built and it's sort of 
easier to build, in, in, in her mind, it's easier to build off of the foundation than it is to build the foundation itself. Mm. But I, it's, when you have been taught to think through whatever social learning that all you should be doing is thinking about science and working at the bench and everything, when you are pining for some sort of literature, yeah. you yeah. start asking yeah. yourself, am I a bad scientist? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think we've all been there. <laughs> It's time for our episode summaries. Every episode, we give ourselves 10 minutes to come up with a poem or an Upgoer 5 that synthesizes the day's discussion. Upgoer 5s are the invention of Randall Monroe of XKCD fame, and they restrict our summaries to the thousand most common words in the English language. We hope you enjoy hearing them as much as we enjoy creating them, and we encourage you to take a minute to try your own hand at it. All right, it's time to summarize our episode with Poems and, and upgoer fives of, of, of dubious yes. quality. I think we're all poems today. I think we're all poems today. All right, just yeah. poems of dubious quality. Did life begin with instructions? Did it start with a chemical function? We look high and low as we strive to know. Is Earth of unique disposition? Oh. oh. Is it? That twist. <laughs> <laughs> Left. All right, I... The, this episode really brought a lot out of me. <laughs> and, uh, I'm ready. And I hope that this poem will either be remembered or forgotten. This <laughs> <laughs> as necessary. <laughs> I think your host will be fulfilled. <laughs> One of those things must happen. <laughs> All right, I will read this in my dramatic voice. Yes. All right. Yes. Please. Oh, metabolic life, give us a sign. Did you cut through the brine with your informative knife, that RNA, that membranous vessel? Do you wander still and bring chaos to completion? Is it the universal will to create the secretion of entropy, that churning mill? I stand before my bench, today a scientific wench, tomorrow joyous for my factual clairvoyance. <laughs> you were really looking for a word for bench, weren't you? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. John, let's so hear it. For, I, went, I went for a poem as well, Great. but I took a, a modernist take on oh, poem. So okay. It's, okay. it's short and doesn't rhyme. <laughs> Vents billow in a lost time, cycling round in the depths, and wonder at the clouds beneath the sea. Whoa. Oh. Wow. I cool. feel like I could fall asleep to that. Yeah. Just loop it. <laughs> okay, mine also doesn't rhyme, but it's sort of rambling. Right. Okay. Two pools, one deep away from Helios, one small near to Jupiter. Echidna feeds one, the Olympian strikes the other. Energy ekes its niche, information changes chemicals, flux. Rotate, move, cycle, copy, edit, cut, bond. Both elaborate, both change. Can they merge? <laughs> Janus views all, double-faced. 
Minerva oh. has yet to rule. Oh, <laughs> that was amazing. That was yeah. good. You're you're really bringing out the classics. Yeah, <laughs> I I appreciate it so much. Well, on that note, we just want to recap here. Remind y'all that we discussed two possible theories for the origins of life today. One, the RNA first hypothesis, says that the information blueprints for life were the first thing to arise. The other, the metabolism first theory, says that life's methods of extracting energy came before the blueprints. Both of these theories have lots of ideas backing them up and lots of evidence that maybe they still need to work on um, sort of building their evidence towards some of the pushback that they've received. With that, I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'm Aditi. I'm Lev. John. Julian. And you've been listening to Biosphere. Hi, it's Aditi again. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, please email us at biospherepodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet Lev at LMT underscore spoon. Please review and subscribe if you enjoyed today's episode. And if you want to try your hand at writing your own episode summary, you can find a link to an Upgoer 5 editor in the show notes. Send us your creations. We would love to hear from you. Thank you to Caltech Letters for hosting us. You can find more great science content at caltechletters.org. Lastly, on behalf of the Biosphere team, I wanted to take a moment to wish you all the best in these uncertain times. We recorded this episode several months ago, but it seems like the concept of instability is all too relevant right now. Be safe, stay healthy, and take care of each other. To the healthcare workers, grocery store employees, custodians, mailmen, and all the other unrecognized heroes who are showing us what it means to provide an essential service, you have our profound gratitude.